This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. On this week's podcast, really important information for you if you're a Jaguar Enthusiast Club member or indeed a regular to the Summer Jaguar Festival. We have an interview with a British touring car ace now driving Jaguars in the ice for JLR and all of your technical questions answered. JECpodcast.com Hiya, Wayne Scott here with you for another packed episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Hope you're well and managing to just get out a little bit now and then to enjoy the odd Jaguar drive out as the lockdown restrictions are gently eased here in the UK. And the weather's been particularly nice here in Britain. So uh, I have to admit, I broke last week, dragged the car out of the garage dropped the roof and went for an evening drive it's been really summery weather i just couldn't hold back anymore and you've probably been doing the same and uh, i really hope you've managed to do the same we've had long enough to prepare our jaguars for it let's be honest uh, also a big hello it'd be amazing if they do listen to the podcast but i'll say hello to them anyway to the owners of the red xk 150 I followed earlier this week blasting through the Rutland countryside as well not hanging about I hasten to add out doing just what I was doing as well it was really lovely to see that beautiful Jaguar enjoying the summer evening don't forget we still have that pair of stunning e-type cufflinks to give away to one of you our podcast listeners these are limited editions strictly come with their own certificate of authenticity a beautiful presentation box and are made from actual e-type series one pistons by cmc classic motor cars in bridge north and icarus originals in shrewsbury to be in with a chance of winning, all you have to do is answer via the contact form at jcpodcast.com the simple question that we asked you in episode six. You have until midnight on Thursday the 28th of May to enter as we'll be announcing the winner on next week's podcast and in our Friday Spotlight email next week. So don't delay, listen to episode six, answer that question and it could be you winning that stunning pair of limited edition E-Type cufflinks. Next on the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast, I thought we'd check in with general manager of the club, James Blackwell, just to check out how the club's running, how everyone in the office is keeping, and also to remind you of some of the things you can get involved with, and also how we're dealing with uh, membership renewals at the minute. So, uh, hiya, James. Hello, Wayne. How are you doing? Good, mate. Good. And you're still working from home, and the office is still running with business as normal as we described in episode one of the podcast, isn't it? That's correct. Yes, yes. So, uh, Graham and I are still both working working from home um, we've managed to get the systems as uh, as secure and as stable as we're going to so it allows us to pretty much do 90 99 percent of everything we need to do um the only difference is obviously is there's only graham and myself answering the phone now so uh, it's uh, yeah we we find we're, we're busy with with calls coming in and uh, we're appreciating the patience of people when they do call we obviously keep people up to date every friday through the friday spotlight emails so keep your eyes out for those goes loads of important information about the club in friday spotlight that we put out every week and uh, it's just another of the many ways the club is keeping in touch and keeping in touch it is as well through the region 
regions and they've been doing all sorts of interesting stuff there's been zoom meetings flying about all over the place isn't there <laughs> if to have been a shareholder of zoom before all this kicked off eh? mm. um yeah no it's been it's been really exciting actually how our regions have, have taken this the opportunity to explore new ways of meeting and uh, and the technology and uh, so much so that uh, we've as a club we've purchased some of the uh, the subscription models of zoom um, so we, we're making those accessible for our regions so they can get together and actually have a meet um, through the club. So, uh, yeah, so that for those regions, if you haven't, you know, get in touch with your region or your regional ambassador, if you know who those are, and they can uh, they can set you up and get the meetings going. But there have been some real crackers out there, without a doubt, Wayne, as you say. And uh, I know uh, Peter Purdon, who's involved with the, uh, the Warwick and Oxfordshire region, um, has got um, a, a really exciting guest speaker coming up. And it's a great thing to see because it has been really tough on the regions. They are based around getting together in person, doing runs out. And indeed, if you look on the website, jc.org.uk, under our news section, we have updated the coronavirus news for you there with all of the latest guidance from bodies like the FBHVC and from UK government on what we as car clubs need to do to make sure that we're staying within the guidelines. And basically, at the minute, it says, please do not drive in groups or convoys. The UK government still clearly stating that we can't meet more than one person from outside the household and uh, that it's important that large groups of classic car owners don't congregate in particular areas such as parks places of natural beauty they are saying of course by all means use your classic cars for individual journeys for popping to the shops for journeys that you yourself are taking maybe to go and do exercise but not to use any rallies or club meets or convoys or runs together just at the moment we were last weekend as we record this at the end of may supposed to have all got together and had a massive party at newby hall in north yorkshire for the summer jaguar festival 2020 that couldn't happen as has been well reported but we are still looking for the summer jaguar festival at the end of august aren't we james we're still on for it we are yes uh, so 21st to the 23rd of august um up at uh, newby and nid hall uh, respectively and uh, yeah it was i imagine i was not alone in myself sort of cursing the fact that we had glorious weather you know the one thing we have no control over and uh, we had great weather for the event that we couldn't attend frustratingly yeah. but but you know as we know that that's where we are so um hopefully you know we'll come august um you know we're, we're following the guidelines as as best we can and we're, we're sort of altering the uh, the plans and that to make sure that we uh provided we are able to go ahead with this event um you know until we're told otherwise we're, we're going ahead with it and uh, so we're just keeping on what the guidelines are which you've uh, so clearly outlined their way and of course planning already underway for e60 next year which is the 60th anniversary of the jaguar e-type and the summer jaguar festival planned for the 14th to the 16th of may 2021 also the 70th anniversary of the first victory that jaguar had at le mans with those c-types in 1951 and uh, i'm not going to give too much away i think we should just keep people on tenter hooks for now james but it, there are some big things planned for next year at blenheim palace aren't there oh there is i mean look you, you're involved with the events committee as well wayne so like you say we need to keep sort of tight lipped on this but uh, it's, it's been a real pleasure these last few weeks just really building what that, that event's going to look like and uh, what the story of the weekend's going to be and all, all of those little bits it's oh, it's, it's so hard not to give things away but it's uh, if, if all of our plans come to fruition it is going to be one heck of a weekend isn't it it's um yeah really excited about that one 
If you are missing the Summer Jaguar Festival like we all are, then there is a way to get involved with showing your Jaguar, looking at other Jaguars on show and also participating in concourse. We're running a virtual concourse on our virtual Summer Jaguar Festival or Summer Jaguar Festival, the virtual version as I'm calling it. And it's really easy to get involved with this. Uh, just simply go to the podcast website, jcpodcast.com. You'll see the menu along the top there for virtual festival and that will open up the festival gates to you and within there you'll find the show field that you can show your car on there's a simple form that you fill out to upload a picture of your jaguar to the virtual show field you can watch videos on there as well of previous years summer jaguar festivals all the video footage from blenheim some great footage from windsor on there as well uh, you can relive all of those previous years through those pages and you can also enter our virtual concourse de elegance and there's a very easy form to fill out where you have to provide six photos of your very special jaguar we're opening entries till the end of the month and then those entries will go up on the virtual summer jaguar festival website to the public vote and we are going to sort out some nice little prizes it's just for fun really just for a bit of a laugh but we are going to sort out some nice prizes for those that win the public vote so get involved it's all over on jcpodcast.com the virtual summer jaguar festival that you can get involved with there and back to talk of the real summer jaguar festival for next year at blenheim palace the 16th of may the final day on the sunday is going to have another feature because the raffle car is going to come to a crescendo and it's going to find its new owner uh, because the dates have been extended haven't they james they have it, it feels like the raffle has come full circle because they uh, going back when the club first started doing this and raising money for the, the charity then that's what they used to do it used to be drawn at the, the national event and uh, so yeah so there we are we've returned um, to that because we've had to extend the dates so yeah thank you very much to the gambling commission to allow us to to do that they obviously understood the predicament that we were in and uh, it really does allow us to try and support the charity the the haemophilia society as best we can and uh, make the most of, of it and yeah and yet another attraction to the to the day you know what a what a thing to to try and end the show with you know on, when it comes to the 16th of may next year to to uh, hand over the, the keys to a, the uh, the raffle car, the uh, that fabulous XK5 litre it is as well. So, uh, yeah, just another attraction, one that we can announce, thankfully. <laughs> oh, I'll be green with envy of whoever comes. And not only will they have an amazing day out at the Summer Jaguar Festival, but they'll be driving home an XK that they've won for just two quid on a raffle. Amazing. And that two quid going towards our fantastic charity, the Haemophilia Society. All the details for which you can find at jc.org.uk. Just click the shop link there and you can buy your raffle tickets online. The only thing we must say, James, is, of course, we have rules on credit cards, don't we? We do indeed, yes. So the, earlier this year, the uh, the Gambling Commission changed their, uh, their their regulations, and we can only take payment now with a, a, a debit card. Uh, credit cards are, are no longer accepted. So if you do try and buy the ticket and you find it's not working, just just make sure you're not using a credit card. JC.org.uk. Get your raffle tickets now to win that XK at the Summer Jaguar Festival at uh, Blenheim Palace, 14th to the 16th of May, 2021. And uh, important that uh, we let 
let everyone know that we can do all of the membership renewals as normal as well so there's no need or reason to uh, let your membership lapse we'll sort that all out for you very quickly won't we james we will indeed and of course the magazine is continuing in its same format all 132 pages so still getting your magazine you're still able to contact us and renew and uh, as far as we can business as usual we just might have to wait a bit longer for your card to come through the post that is about it well, if you're listening to this podcast via jcpodcast.com and you're trying to find out where you can renew your membership, it's really easy, actually. If you look at the top of the website at jcpodcast.com, you'll find a button there that says Join Now, and you can actually use that button to also renew your existing membership. James, thank you very much for joining us. Memories of Motorsport. Richard remembers on the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Richard West continues his fascinating series looking back over his most treasured motorsport memories. This week, he looks back on the moment Jaguar arrived in Formula One and his fond memories of Nicky Lauda. When Jaguar first arrived on the Formula One grid, I, I personally thought it was a great, great move because the brand, that's obviously the leaper and everything that goes with it, is incredibly powerful. Jaguar's motor racing heritage history from club racing right the way through to you know so many successes in in the morning some of the characters and people that have driven for jaguar over the years it seemed a logical progression um nicky louder who obviously went on to become for a period team principal at jaguar i'd known from my days at mclaren in 84 85 when he partnered alan prost and uh one of the ways I met Nicky when he first when I first went to McLaren mid eighty four, Nicky was obviously there and established with Ron and the team was already very successful. And Ron being Ron, I walked into Ron's office at Boundary Road and Nicky was sat there, who was one of my absolute heroes. He's still one of my absolute heroes. And Ron said to Nicky, You know who this guy is? And Nicky looked at me and nodded. And Ron said to me, You obviously know who this guy is, and I nodded, and that was the end of the introduction. Um and after that, I got to work very closely with Nicky um, throughout his tenure in Formula One until he retired at the end of the 85 season. When the Jaguar Formula One team came into being, obviously there was quite a lot of management movement. And when Nicky was appointed into the position that he had there, I thought to myself, well, this is going to be good. Because, you know, when you look back over history and you read some of the things, the way Nicky worked at Ferrari and how he worked with Bernie at Brabham and indeed with Ron, you know, and the team at McLaren when we were so successful in 84, 85. I thought this is obviously going to be, you know, right man, right time. But in motor racing, the one thing you find, and I've experienced in my career, you know, you have to gel. I mean, as much as I loved my two stints at Williams, and I did love them, they were fantastic periods of my life working with some amazing people. If you cut me in half, in many ways, I'm still red and white, like a stick of rock from my McLaren years. You know, we still refer to each other in the McLaren Old Boys and Girls Association as the red and whites. And Nicky was a big part of that. When you've seen the way he worked and his intelligence, and then he went off and did his airline and how he recovered from the airline crash, you know, with the when the um, aircraft um, misperformed and all those people lost their lives on louder air. I think you, you've got to look at it and say to yourself, this is the guy that you want running a team. However, I just don't think the chemistry was right, you know? And I, <laughs> I bumped into him one afternoon. I was on my way down to Bristol uh, long before I knew the JEC were there in those days. And I pulled into memory services and there was the Jaguar filling up the fuel and you can't mistake the red cap. And there he was. And, you know, just the two of us, I'm filling up my sort of Ford, whatever it was at the time. 
Nicky was filling up his Jaguar. And they shout, hey, what are you doing? You know, what are you doing here? And I said, I'm filling up the petrol, the same as you. Where have you been? What are you doing? So we stood on the forecourt, you know, having a conversation. Ah, I better go and pay for my fuel. You know, it's time to go. And I walked in and the guy, the cashier was going, hey, man, do you know who that is? It's Nicky Lauder. And I said to him, yeah, I used to work with him. He said, yeah, right, of course you did. <laughs> and I paid for my fuel and, that, you know, that was the end of it. But I, I had a chance to say to him, how's it going? And he said, it's not easy. It's not, he said, the chemistry is just not where I would like it to be. And subsequently, I never got close to Nicky in a professional capacity when he ran Jaguar. But from an outsider looking in who knew him from my McLaren days and Formula One days, I never felt he was particularly comfortable there. And I think what you saw towards the end of Nicky's career in his life, you know, he, he, he transferred his interests, he surfaced then at Mercedes-Benz, and his relationship with Toto Wolff became absolute, and Lewis and all the others within the team. And I think the closest I've ever seen to that sort of relationship of experience and commercialism and professionalism was probably Ron Dennis and John Barnard in their McLaren era together. And I think that's what Nicky found in his latter years with Toto Wolff at the Mercedes F1 team. So. You can never take away from what the man did. I mean, if you, you look at some people's CVs and you think, yeah, that's pretty impressive. You know, you sit down and take a look on Wikipedia at what Nicky did in his life. Jaguar are lucky to have him for the period he did. And although it didn't bring the success that that team should have done, there was no shame in what he did. I think he did a remarkable job there. But as I say, I just don't think the chemistry was right at the time. We all miss him. R.O.P. Nicky, you're a great guy. Listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Sharing the passion, sharing the knowledge. All your questions answered with the Jaguar model experts. Another set of your questions answered now on the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. And Tom Robinson from our technical team is here once again with us. Hiya, Tom. Hi, Wayne. How's things down at uh, Swallows Independent Jaguar today then, Tom? Nice and busy in the sunshine? Yeah, absolutely, Wayne. Things are really starting to get um, pretty busy here. We've still got um, not all of our staff present. We're sort of going to go back to normality um, from the first of next month. But we are starting to get quite a lot of booking. So it's pretty hectic at the moment. And no racing as yet, but we are seeing moves in the racing community to at least start to open some of the race circuits now for track days, aren't we? Yeah, absolutely. We've had no sort of direct confirmation of any of these that go going ahead yet, but I have seen dates for some track days um, sort of um, end of next month, early July, which is great news. Um, and then hopefully we'll hear soon enough about some race dates once they're announced. Fingers crossed as we uh, start to look forward to some kind of normality returning whatever that might look like but in the meantime you've got problems with your jaguars so we're here to help you solve them and elliot hurst is the first one with a question on this week's podcast and it's all to do with a jaguar mark ii that's flooding and elliot says i've got a problem when the engine is hot if i pull up at lights or if i'm slow in traffic the engine revs drop and i have to keep the revs up with the accelerator there's a very strong smell of petrol as well. The auxiliary starting carburetor body has petrol coming out of the top of the tube underneath the brass plate that the starting needle passes through. Can someone guide me please to solve this problem as uh, I'm worried it could result in a fire. It's a problem that needs sorting very quickly, isn't it, Tom? Yeah, absolutely, Wayne. Um, so I've actually spoken to um, David Marks about this and he's given some great information. So Tom, we know that the carburetor is in essence a U-bend with one side of the U is the float chamber 
The other, the jet, and where they are fitted, the electric starting carburettor as well. So if the level's too high in the float chamber, it follows that under normal conditions, it's going to be too high in the jet and the starting carburettor. So what's the most likely cause of this problem? So the most likely um, cause is a jam needle valve that is meant to regulate the flow of fuel into the float chamber. The other likely possibilities is that the brass float is perforated and is sinking, i.e. negative buoyancy. If this is the case, a new float will be required. We always replace these in pairs. These floats are basically just like the cistern in your toilet, aren't they? They literally just float on the top of the fuel level and they shut off the uh, the supply from the pump basically when that when it's full yeah absolutely wayne now there is also a possibility that the carburetor vent system has incorrectly been assembled there are two washers at the top of the float chamber where the overflow pipe is one a plain aluminium version the other is a fiber segmented washer now it is essential that the order of the fitment is float chamber lid segmented fiber washer overflow pipe banjo and union then aluminium washer if there is a triangular aluminium serial number tag with the carburetor this should go on top of the overflow pipe banjo fitting under the aluminium washer never below the banjo this order of fitment is vital for the correct venting of the float chamber as it fills with fuel a fuel pump running too high pressure can also cause this but as only one carburetor is reported to be a problem, this seems perhaps unlikely in these circumstances, Wayne. Hopefully, Elliot, that answers your question. And uh, the places to look then are the brass float, whether that's perforated and is sinking, and that will allow fuel to overflow out of the float chamber, or a jammed needle valve, and they're meant to regulate the flow of fuel into the float chamber. So if that's stuck, uh, instead of shutting off the fuel at the correct level, it just keeps allowing the petrol to pump in. And then finally, the third thing to look at is the carburetor vent system and check that that's been correctly assembled in the order that Tom has just outlined there. On to the next question now. This comes from Ian Forbes, and it's an X300 XJ6 question about indicators and rear fog lights. And uh, Ian says, Hi, my 1996 XJR indicators flash double speed and my rear fog lights don't work. The switch lights up on the fascia, but his lights ain't working. What's going on there, Tom? Yeah, no problem, Ian. So uh, first things first, I would just um, sort of go back to basics and check the absolute obvious, as this does sometimes get missed. So firstly, make sure both of the bulbs are good in the fog lamp units. And also, assuming the indicators all seem to be working and the repeaters, just check the front indicator units where there are two bulbs in each housing. It often fails and it's not always noticed straight away that that is the issue. Now, another point is, did these problems both happen at the same time? Um, if so, it is possible that the rear bulb fail module has a problem, usually to do with water ingress, as it is located adjacent to the battery in the boot. Otherwise, all I can say really is to kind of check all the connections for corrosion and check all of the fuses as per your driver's hand. But if unfortunately this still all comes up with nothing, I would probably recommend to book in with your local specialist. Okay, lots of things to check there then. Uh, our third question for this week's episode is from Ted Shillybeer. And he's got an X-Type, a 2.2 Sovereign, 2009 model. And Ted says the engine light is showing a faulty EGR valve. And he's checked this and there's nothing wrong, but the light returns in a couple of hours. Uh, the, his mechanic turns it off and it keeps coming back on. What do you reckon, Tom? 
Right, okay, so firstly I'd like to confirm a few points. Firstly, how have you confirmed the EGR is good or have you actually replaced the item? Um, we do replace these pretty regular, so it is quite a common issue. Now, I'd also just like to make you aware that Jaguar models only really respond relatively accurately to the actual Jaguar diagnostics or an autologic diagnostic platform. Many generic scanners aren't so accurate and give very basic code. So often with the correct system, we have a much more accurate direction to start with. Now, if the valve has been replaced, I would then double check the electrical connectors to the EGR valve, as we have had issues with pins being damaged on replacement before. Now, another key area um, with this wiring is that it can often chafe on the actual fuel pipes and damage the wire. So just check that. It's quite a short um, distance of wiring. So just you'll see on the external conduit there if there is any damage. Now, I would also suggest to check the EGR to map sensor pipe as these often split. Now, a normal key indicator to this is either excessive smoke um, or oil residue around the pipe itself. Now, excessive smoke won't always be noticeable if there is a DPF fitted. Um, now, sort of moving any further, really, we would kind of need to confirm of if there is any other fault codes present first. So that's about all I can kind of offer without looking at the car. But if you do have some more detailed information with some other fault codes, I may be able to give you a clearer picture. It's a very good point there with fault codes. It leads actually quite nicely into a question we had on our Instagram feed uh, earlier on in this week, Tom, that you might be able to answer for us. And Colin Porter says... Um, a bit of a leading question for Tom here. Many people now own simple OBD2 readers, bought off eBay or wherever. Um, why is it not a good idea to erase the fault codes yourself? That's actually a really, really good point, Wayne, because we, we get this all the time. And um, as Colin said, you can buy sort of an OBD reader that connects to your, your phone or a tablet now. Now, these are only basic fault code readers, so they'll just give you a generic code. So it will give you an area to look at, but it won't give you any further details on that. So, for example, if your vehicle has an engine management light on and you clear that, when you then book it in with us as a specialist, the first thing we will do is scan the car to see what codes are present. Now, if you've obviously already cleared these codes, the car might not have faulted in the distance it's taken you to drive to us. So we have nothing to go on at all, if that makes sense to you, as there's no code stored in the ECU. Now, Certain fault codes take a different amount of times to re-log into the system. So, for example, um, some of the actual fueling codes on some of the more modern cars actually can take up to 500 miles to log that code again. So it is quite important for you to avoid clearing the codes. It's absolutely fine to read the codes and have a look what they are. Um, I would probably suggest if you are booking the car in and you do have access to a reader is to just let the, the office staff or a technician know what the codes are before you drive it and they can give you some good advice before you actually drive the vehicle. Excellent. Uh, good points raised there from Colin Porter on the Jaguar Enthusiast Club Instagram feed where you can leave us more messages, of course. The best way to get in touch with the podcast is always via jcpodcast.com. Use the contact page on there and you can either use the form and fill that out with your question or indeed you can leave us a voice message on there and we can get you straight on the podcast so uh, thanks once again to david marks for his input into those answers and uh, of course to you tom and uh, you've got no doubt lots of cars stacked up in the workshop what are you working on for the rest of this afternoon so for the rest of this afternoon i've, I've got a couple of xfs in for servicing really um we've got a cam belt to do um that's been collected tomorrow so um got plenty to do this afternoon xf cam belts good fun you'll enjoy that <laughs> 
Yeah, absolutely. You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Join the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club now at jec.org.uk. My next guest was a star of touring car racing in the 1980s and arrived in the British Touring Car Championship in 1988 at the wheel of the formidable RS500 Ford Sierra Cosworths. Uh, He now races a Jaguar D-Type and we'll find out a little bit more about that as well as some other interesting activities with Jaguars. Uh, But uh, welcome to the podcast, Carl Jones. Hiya, Carl. Hi, how are you doing, Wayne? Hope you're well and surviving this awful time at the moment. Really difficult for a lot of people, but uh, hopefully you're well. Yes, very well, thanks, Carl. It's good to talk to you again and understand that you had a special bit of difficulty during the lockdown because you were actually moving house halfway through it, weren't you? Yes, yes. Uh, after 41 years in England, I uh, moved back to Wales. The boy came home. <laughs> boy came home, yes. Living uh, just about 12 miles from where uh, I was brought up, actually. Wow. It's not necessarily the hub of motorsport, is it? So how did you get into the sport in the first place? Uh, well, I started following Tom Price on, on the TV, you know, back in those days, there was very little uh, Grand Prix on on television being televised, uh, but I saw a few, and uh, I remember seeing Tom Price, I think it was a Belgian Grand Prix, and I think he got up to fourth place and started, because that was the first, the very first part of uh, motorsport I really got interested in, and uh, from then on started following it, and then I was probably 75 and then 76. It was the Hunt Lauda era. Uh, so, yeah, got uh, probably the best of Formula One that's ever been, I think, that year, 76. Um, so, yeah, started following it. And uh, as, I, as, as I was growing up, I was thinking to myself, yeah, I wouldn't mind having a go at that. Did, of course, didn't know anything about motor racing or how to get involved or no idea how it was financed or anything did absolutely uh, no idea at all and then shortly afterwards there was uh, the welsh national newspaper called the western mail uh, they were wanting somebody to follow in the footsteps of tom price and uh, they would pay hearty lessons at Bransach racing school um, so I went up and did one lesson it's like 300 miles it's almost 300 miles each way so I went up and did a lesson um, absolutely loved it but that was it one lesson and back home and uh, actually somebody quite local to me about eight miles away I didn't know at the time actually won the competition and started racing Formula Ford the following year that was Tim Davis um, and Tim raced against uh, Etten Senna Tommy Byrne and uh, he was very very quick and came third I think in the Dunlop Star Tomorrow Championship Formula Fords and then uh, won the Formula Ford 2000 Championship and went on to Formula 3 but obviously lack of finance didn't uh, given the potential of winning so many races with lack of budget but he was always always very very quick very talented but when he first started racing Formula Fords I used to go with him to the races on weekends and um, he said, uh, Jackie Epstein, we're at Mallory Park with Jackie Epstein and Brian Jones, John Webb will be there at the race meeting. I'll introduce you to them because Jackie's going to run the racing school the following year. So that's 
uh, how it started, really. And uh, at the Formula Ford Festival, I met with Jackie, and uh, he said, yes, I'll give you um, employment to look after the Formula Fords at uh, motor racing stables at the racing school. And as part of your salary, you can do the, go through the school and actually do the Talbot Sunbeam Saloon Car Racing as well. So I came second in that the first year. Not so good the following year. I finished seventh or something. I had a couple of spins, trying too hard, I guess. <laughs> You're kind of an example of a, another route into the, into the sport, really, where you've literally had to work to earn your seat. And that's something that is quite alien to people coming into the sport nowadays, isn't it? Yes, most certainly. Um, 81, Jackie asked me if I'd like to use one of the old uh, Formula Fords uh, to do the Dunlop Star Tomorrow Championship. And um, we, we got a new chassis, new dampers, and wheel bearings, and yeah, went racing. Didn't again, didn't have any idea. Of, knew how to set the car up, and didn't know what understeer oversteer was. And uh, we went up to Croft, and did uh, first round did laps out tomorrow. I think there was 54 entries there, and came second, I think, in the heat, and, de- and definitely second in the final because I almost won it. So, yeah, amazing, really, and. Uh, as I said, uh, worked at the racing school, so I learnt about the cars fairly quickly. Um, but yeah, I, I think I was very fortunate because at the, at now it's impossible. I don't think there's opportunities like that to exist anymore. I think I was probably one of the last to go through that. Uh, you know, it happened a lot before my time. Ian Flux, again, another guy um, that very similar to me, just working for teams, you know, helping uh, prepare the cars and subsidise your drives. Um, but obviously got involved with Ron Carnell at Duckham's and he helped me so much over the years as well. Yeah, because that was really where your career sort of switched from single-seater work and you won your first championship. I think it was in 1983, wasn't it, in, in Formula Ford that you, you won? Yeah, I won the John Player Champion of Brands Formula Ford series and... Uh, yeah, always very, very close competitive racing, you know, pretty close contacts, uh, but, you know, pretty fierce racing back then. Um, moving into saloons, that was with Jerry Marshall initially with the uh, Fiat Strada Arbath. And uh, we came first in the uh, Monroe Championship in 86. And um, in 87, I then went with Richard Asquith with the Escort Turbo with um, backing from Duckham's with Ron. And we won the Uni Royal Championship that year. And that was very, very competitive championship. And we beat Rob Gravitt by a single point. So it was very close when you consider it as a 500k race and a 24-hour race in the championship and exactly the same points. You know, I won it by a single point. It was a lot of pressure that season, but thoroughly enjoyed it. A great championship and a, a fantastic little car to drive to. That was a contact sport in the 80s, wasn't it? It was quite rough racing. Compared to Formula Ford, it was pretty tame. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, we, we the Escort Turbo, uh, we were up against Cosworth Mercedes and BMW M3s. So it wasn't the quickest car, but... Uh, 
Yeah, we got there in the end. <laughs> Tell us about your relationship with Ron Carnell at Duckham's then, because Duckham's is a sponsor. They came with you to British Touring Car Championship. You must have had a really good rapport with Ron at the time. Yeah, I first met Ron Carnell uh, in the early 80s, actually, when I was working at Brands Hatch. I was in the uh, working for motor racing stables, looking after those Formula Fords for five or six years. So... Um, we were based in the pit garages at Brands Hatch, uh, garages four, five, and six, I think they were. So they would test, they'd be testing there a couple of days a week, and you know you meet different people, and even Formula One teams used to come up exclusive test days and that. So we used to meet a lot of people, and Ron used to knock on the door and come in, have a cup of tea, and a good old chat. So that's how uh, the relationship started and the rapport. And uh, he backed me in a small way in Formula Fords, but then uh, once we got into production saloons, they came on full full board with uh, BF Goodrich, uh, Mike Hodges at BF Goodrich. So we actually, that production saloon car championship, um, we ran the whole car on, I think it was £10,000 budget, fairly re- reasonable when you consider the 24-hour race and 500k race included in that championship. Yeah, absolutely. What was the moment that took you from thrashing a Fiat Strada or the uh, Escort RS Turbo uh, around to making that big jump into British Touring Car Championship? How did that scenario present itself? Well, Richard Asquith, uh, when we were running the Escort Turbo in prod saloons that year, he he then, uh, they purchased uh, Richard Longman's RS Turbo Group A version. So we did two or three races towards the end of the season with the idea of moving up into British touring cars the following year. And then the Cosworth Sierra, um, you know, was the car to have that year. Um, so we had him, Richard came, he's, his background he used to work at uh, Borum. Uh, with um, with Peter Ashcroft uh, on the ra- on the rally team before you know in his early days, mm-hmm. so we went up to meet Peter Ashcroft and he actually supplied us with the body shell um, suspension, although it was rally suspension, ideal for the racetrack. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he actually um, the engine he paid for the first rebuild, the first build on the engine as well. So that was for Ford Motorsport. Uh, so we had the basic running gear, and then Duckham's came along with a, a budget for us to go racing in the British touring cars with the Cosworth. So it was a fairly big step up. There were some huge names and some really great races. You know, you were rubbing shoulders with the likes of Andy Rouse and Steve Soper. It was a really special era in British touring cars, that. It must have been really great to have been a part of it as well. Most certainly, and uh, looking back especially, I think um, very, very fortunate to have had the opportunity to drive uh, such a formidable car. And uh, although frustrating as hell at the time, uh, some you know one weekend you could be down at Thruxton and uh, finish second, and within two weeks' time you're going to head into Silverstone. But before leaving the paddock at Thruxton, you know the twelfth next race at Silverstone because that's how far off the pace we were on power. So that was very very frustrating at the time. Well, you do mention Thruxton there, and I know that that is one of your favourite circuits, isn't it? There was something that you had at Thruxton. You used to do really well there. 
Yeah, um, I was taught, I was first shown around there by uh, Ian Taylor when I raced Formula Fords and uh, he showed me all the lines and so on around there and it just gave you so much more confidence out the back on the fast bumpy sections. And I also remember when I drove for Jerry Marshall one day he asked me, Where, where's your favourite track boy? And I said, Brands Grand Prix track in Alton Park. And he said, therefore, in Pussies boy. Um, and I didn't quite understand what he meant until I drove the, he said, Thruxton's man's track. And I quite couldn't understand what he meant until I drove the Cosworth round Thruxton. And I instantly thought, I certainly know what he means now. And uh, yeah, to drive the, you know, 550 horsepower around there uh, on the bumps of the back, it's yeah, just something else. I, um, Thruxton became my favourite track and Noble, the fast left-hander, is my favourite corner because on the bumps the car will move about seven, eight feet across the road at 140 mile an hour and you work in the wheel pretty hard and there, it doesn't get any better than that. We had uh, Wynne Percy on the podcast a few episodes ago and he was talking about the uh, way that Tom Walkinshaw Racing at the time had turned the XJS, a grand tour of a Jaguar, into a quite formidable touring car and uh, the same had been done with the RS500 for you and it was in that era where quite different to now i guess where they're very dedicated racing cars that happen to look like the saloon cars you can buy in those days they were very much road cars with all the compromises that you had to put up with to put them onto the track and i mean basically that meant that they moved around a hell of a lot didn't they yes uh they were they were pretty raw raw brutish powerful cars yes and you had to grab them by the scruff of the neck and give it your best shot but uh I certainly enjoyed that part of it, definitely. Great uh, you had uh, Wynn on, the, on, the, on your podcast recently. He's a lovely gentleman. And uh, recently, last year actually, he'd been coaching his nephew, Ian Calderwood, and uh, his first time on uh, getting involved in racing. And he's a genuine, lovely chap. Oh, brilliant. It's good to see the, the families uh, staying in it. We were talking to Martin Brundle about his son staying in it as well and the new generation of all these legends coming through. It's, it's a nice thing, isn't it? And uh, you're a part of that and, and training those uh, those new talents that are coming through. Tell us about how your involvement is in motorsport now because that's just one part of it, isn't it? I seem to spend uh, a lot of my time with uh, JLR, with uh, Jaguar events on the Jaguar side most so, and then uh, JLR Ice Academy in the winter, usually out there for eight to ten weeks uh, with them in Sweden, uh, up near the Arctic Circle. So that keeps me busy and also do a lot of uh, private coaching for people getting involved in racing and trying to uh, improve their ability on track and uh, Pass on all that knowledge and uh, even on the setup side as well, um, helping a small team last year. 309, Peugeot 309 space frame with 540 at the wheels and uh, 450 foot-pounds of torque. Cosworth engine, weighs 900 kilos and we got that the quickest it's ever been around brands and they've had the car for probably 12 years or so and uh, that was a great day uh, helping them uh, improve the suspension and get the car going quicker for them so really enjoy that side of it too i know from uh, talking to you on the phone and uh, catching up as we do now and then that uh, quite often you are in the middle of some ice flow somewhere and you mentioned uh, driving the uh, jlr cars in, in sweden tell us a little bit more about that because that's an amazing thing you literally just disappear 
appear for 10 weeks onto a glacier or something somewhere don't you with a bunch of jaguars yeah um so they use uh, a varied selection of uh, jaguars and uh, land rover sites so they use the velar range rover sport f-type v8 the svrs uh, the v6 version of the f-type and they just Great cars, great company, and uh, people come from all over the world to, to for two or three day courses. Yes, and we stuck out on the middle of a frozen lake in uh, freezing cold conditions. I think the coldest we had uh, not last year, the year before was minus 38. So yeah, it's pretty pretty chilly out there. <laughs> but uh, those cars are great, great fun. Uh, you know, five seventy five horsepower for the F Type V8 uh, SVR and 600 newton metres of torque so you can imagine the fun you have driving one of those at speed on the frozen lake well of course we can see you on the race tracks of the uk still in many of the classic and historic races and certainly we've seen you out in uh, paul infoot's uh, louis liveried cosworth rs 500 at silverstone classic you've also been driving quite a lot of uh, the jaguar d-type uh, from ben eastwick who owns that stunning car that d-type i know from talking to other drivers is a car that if you've ever driven in touring cars or saloon cars where you're driving on the throttle and you're used to a car sliding around those that have come from that discipline of motorsport seem to get on with an old d-type really well is that how you feel as well yes um and it's good uh, i think uh, win percy actually talking of win earlier on their wind drove uh, a d-type uh, very rapidly around goodwood i recall mm. but uh, yeah i actually uh, it's my type of car and Last year on Thruxton, it was phenomenal around there and uh, didn't win the race. I gave it away with a few laps to go, which was a bit unfortunate, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was a great time. Very, um, the car's constantly trying to bite you in the backside, so you need intense concentration to be quick and, you know, razor sharp. So last year, beginning of last year, I decided I wouldn't have a drink. I hadn't had a drink for over a year because I wanted to be sharper for the racing. Mm -hmm. And it certainly paid off because um, Ben and myself won the REC uh, Woodcote Trophy uh, with the D-Type last year. So that was very nice. And won a championship since 1987, I think it was. (laughs) (laughs) But I was away from racing for a long time, as I, I think I mentioned to you before. I raced for 17 years and then... When the two boys arrived, I I stopped racing for a similar amount of time. I wanted to get back into racing for almost 10 years, I guess, but uh, very poor at going selling myself and test train drivers, which I won't do. But um, unfortunately, a good friend of mine, Neil Cunningham, uh, passed away with motor neuron. But when he was ill, he put my name forward to Ben. And uh, that's how the opportunity arose for me Mm. to drive the D-Type. Very, very special car, um, and definitely when you're pushing on the limit, you definitely think of drivers back in the day. You can imagine at Le Mans with their goggles on, oil up, up all over their goggles, and you can imagine how poor the headlights must have been in that era as well, racing at Le Mans. You can imagine the, the, the value of the car, so you've got to be, although we drive pretty hard, you also got to respect the car and definitely don't damage the car. A lot of responsibility whilst trying to give the crowds a good show at the same time. Definitely. I think uh, the last year, the previous year, we came second and 
beat the third car by two hundredths of a second, so they do race pretty close. As we talk during the uh, COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic, we hear that Le Mans Classic, which was due to run in July of this year, has been put back uh, until next year, 2021. So a little bit more time to prepare. And you are hoping, you and Ben, to take that D-Type to Le Mans Classic next year. We need to really ask all of the Jaguar fans listening to this podcast to get behind you and try and support that effort to get that D-Type back to Le Mans Classic. Would be great to see you back there, wouldn't it? The first time I ever went around the Bugatti circuit was with Jean Rondeau uh, many years ago. We tested his Rondeau Formula Ford around there. Mm. And about eight years ago, I did tour auto in a Ferrari 275 GTB. And uh, we had a race on the Bugatti circuit. But no, I'd love to take the D-Type Ben and I, Ben's race there. Uh, but I haven't. And I'd love to race the D-Type there on the uh, on the Lamar track. Well, it certainly gives us uh, all at the Jaguar Enthusiast Club a car to get behind uh, when we're all allowed out from this lockdown and uh, we're able to get to Le Mans Classic for 2021. And uh, we hope to see you there. And if not, we'll see you at one of the many other historic events that you still race at uh, up and down the country throughout the calendar in the year. Will we see you out with Paul Linfoot in the RS500 again at some point soon? Yes, definitely. But not in the Louis car. Um, Paul's actually built... Uh, a car specifically for racing because uh, he has an ex uh, Dick Johnson car and a Louis car that uh, they're really too valuable to race so he doesn't really want to race them anymore he'll still do demonstrations with them but uh, he's built a specific uh, RS500 purely to go racing so we haven't it's literally just about finished now so hopefully we can resume uh, do a little testing and to at least a couple of events this year and really looking forward to that well if you haven't uh, spotted Carl Jones cocking his wheel around some of the tighter corners at Silverstone especially for the Silverstone Classic is definitely worth seeing so it'll be good to see you out in that car again Uh, thanks so much Carl for coming on to the podcast and chatting to us today it's been lovely to talk to you thank you very much indeed Wayne and uh, it's been a pleasure and hopefully we can get back out on the tracks fairly soon and everybody keeps safe That's all for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Don't forget to get in touch and send us your questions via jecpodcast.com. Use the voice recorder on there preferably, or of course, you can use the contact form as well. You can also join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club really easily online at jecpodcast.com. Just click the Join Us button to ensure that you get the latest copy of Jaguar Enthusiast magazine and access to literally hundreds of pounds worth of member discounts and benefits. Till our next podcast, see ya. This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com.